Welcome to the Boiler Podcast, brought to you by Selenis, providing tools to build your expertise and customer value. Apparently, it's important to put out the disclaimer that we're recording this meeting. Uh, we always do. I always record them. They're, they're available uh, on Acumen and, and also on the on the SharePoint site, but uh, just so everybody knows. The other thing is, not that we don't always encourage this, but but I really want to uh, overly encourage a discussion uh, type format uh, with this thing today and from now on. So, uh, you know, Andrew Ledley does uh, the uh, pulp and paper water uh, North America call. It's a little bit of a different audience. There's there's some overlap. There's some people that, that joined both this and, and his call as well. But the last one uh, that we did, we had, had really good discussion. It, it made for uh, a really productive hour and a half meeting. So um, feel free to do that. I may even ask some questions. Um, so I really, really want to talk about these things instead of instead of just reading off a of PowerPoint. Um, this this uh, week or this month's technical portion of the show is going to be, uh, as you can see up there, why is the unit op so special? Referring to the recovery boiler. Um, so uh, first off, though, we'll go ahead and get started with safety like we always do. This is a little bit of a different. Um, well, here we go again. There we go. This is a little bit of a different uh, safety format than than we usually do. Um, kind of a unique idea, I thought, to to bring in our customer safety and incident rate, right? So I don't know if everybody knows or or has really thought about this much, but when you look at a paper mill. And, and the overall incident rate, especially significant inc incident rate, uh, when you're talking about uh, just frequency rate and, and lost time incidents, it's usually it's usually maintenance. It's usually the maintenance folks um, that are injured or have incidents uh, more frequently than than the rest of the mill, even even operators in the utilities areas. Um, but what we're essentially trying to say here with this, those of you that can see see the screen and see that rather complicated chart and diagram up there, um, what we're what we're basically saying is that in general, maintenance workers uh, are more likely to be injured injured on the job, but uh, you know the the frequency rate and the lost time uh, incidents are also a direct function of unplanned or reactive maintenance, right? So when, when something breaks down or something, something, uh, goes wrong on a, in an unplanned fashion. So that, that, that increases the likelihood of injury even more to the, the already, uh, high, most highly affected group. All right. And so, so some of those factors, as you might imagine, are, you know, you know, when something something breaks down, and you got to mobilize a, a maintenance crew to go out and work on something because you know production's at risk. 
Um, you've got stress from department managers, you know, standing over these guys saying, hurry up, work safely, but, but how long is this, <laughs> how long is this going to take? I I've done it a thousand times myself. Um, it's just kind of the nature of the beast when you're responsible for, uh, production in one of these departments, the, the, the tendency is almost unavoidable to, to say, hurry up. Even, even when you say, you know, be safe, don't take any shortcuts, but, but hurry up. So there's some stress that comes with that. Um, you know, at times these emergency situations come up, you know, towards the end of the day, maybe they're already at, at or nearing the end of the shift. They've already been working all day. So there's, there's some fatigue. Um, and, and even attitude issues play a role, you know, here when, you know, man, maybe I had, maybe I had plans to go out to dinner with the wife tonight. And now, um, you know, I got to work on this ash hopper overtime. It's going to, you know, I'm going to miss that. I'm going to, you know, so a lot of distraction distractions can come into play and, um, and affect this. So one of the things we, we do as Salinas, obviously we don't, we don't affect every, uh, equipment related malfunction out in the plants, but we, we can impact that to some degree, uh, as, as water treaters. And so, uh, maybe sometimes, you know, think about this a little bit more, uh, maybe, relay that to your customer and you know if you get the chance to do that you know how, how unplanned maintenance work you know carries a, a higher risk to health and safety and like i said look for an opportunity to share that with your customers and prospects does anybody have anything to add that's that's pretty much it on that no okay nope good all right, so, oh boy. So, that being said, we'll go go into the technical portion of the show here. Um, so, what makes recovery boilers so special? We talk about recovery boilers all the time. Uh, we don't, in fact, you know, why don't we track how many D-type package boilers that Salinas is treating, for instance, but we do recovery boilers. You know, um, why are power and recovery superintendents so particular about who's treating the recovery boilers? We all know that's true. Uh, you know, uh, why is there a blare back? So what I want to do is, is, especially some of the soldiers out there on the call, you know, chime in and, and, and let me know, seriously, some, some of the reasons why we consider water treatment in the recovery boiler so special. Their reliability is integral to mill production. Exactly. That's one of the that's one of the key ones, right? And that's that's on the list. I've got I'm, I'm I've got just a small outline and uh, to name a few of them uh, coming up, but that that's definitely one of the primary ones. We'll expound on that. What else? It's probably one of the most dangerous applications in a mill. That's correct. The 
that that's that's another one that we're going to talk about the potential for disaster is is, is high and ever present right what else there's an example of the lincoln recovery explosion that not only caused about a hundred million dollars worth of damage to the boiler area it uh, shut half the mill down and they never recovered went into bankruptcy yeah. yep they're potentially disastrous results all the time the equipment is 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 very 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 expensive in fact the recovery boiler boiler is always the the most expensive single piece of equipment in the mill usually modern day minimum you know obviously dependent upon production rate but minimum you're, you're spending 500 million dollars to to build a new recovery boiler minimum And now, as opposed to in the past, these, these units are probably reaching the end of their life cycle. So, I mean, uh, there's a lot more potential for failure. Yep, that's that's another good point. Um, as a matter of fact, on Andrew's last call, he had a graph. I don't have I don't have it prepared to pull it up, but but actually a uh, it was a it was a chart that showed the age of recovery boilers all throughout the world, and as as Kai just mentioned, and as everybody might expect, um, there's way more very old ones than there are relatively new ones. It's always a concern. So, so kind of the point to, to Pulton Paper University and all the strides that's, that that we and and Salinas as an organization are are trying to put forth is, you know, we we need to understand these things. We need it's a we need to be able to demonstrate the competence to our customers. That we understand their concerns, and when it comes to uh, utility superintendent or power and recovery manager, um, the reliable operation of the recovery boiler is paramount. Right? We need to understand why, and that's part of the that's part of what I'm trying to get across throughout throughout this this Skype meeting. Hey, Scott, it's, Scott, it's Kai. Real quick, um, on the last slide, you said they're particular about who treats their boilers. There's probably only a handful of companies that, that are that are qualified, especially uh, having a um, leak detection component, um, to be even um, given consideration to treat these. So that actually makes the competitive profile um, a little more attractive for us. Yep, that's that's true. That's true. I'm going to talk about that a little bit during the what we're calling the commercial section of this, but that. That's absolutely true. These accounts bounce back and forth. Just a just a handful of folks, um, us, Nalco, Buckman, and Chemtree. That's that's about the entire scope of water treatment companies that are considered for these bids and for the for this business. So all right. So most uh, most of the ones that were mentioned are are on this either uh, on this list here, either directly or indirectly, but. Uh, these are really in no particular order, but but the first bullet I have up here. So no, uh, again, we're answering the question: What makes a recovery boiler so special, right? From a from a technical standpoint, from a water treatment standpoint, and from an overall, you know, I want to make sure that my customer 
or potential customer, the power recovery superintendent, uh, when I talk to him, that he he feels like I understand what's what's going on out there. Um, so one of the reasons um, that recovery boilers are special is tube leaks are a much bigger deal, right? So why why some somebody tell me why tube leaks are a bigger deal and and does it does it matter where the tube leak is? Yes, Anybody? it matters where it is. Yeah, it, it matters where the tube leak is significantly. That's that's right. Was that Bryce? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's right. So even when we like uh, those of you that have sat through uh, Blairback Conference, that's that's one of the things that we that we talk about when we go through incident reports at Blairback. Right? Is that's one of the first thing that's mentioned is where was the tube leak, and and and, and that matters in terms of is the tube leak considered critical or not. So just being able to identify whether it's a critical tube leak or not, you you have to have some technical knowledge, right? So so Bryce, what why is that important to know where the tube leak is and to know where it is as, as quickly as possible? Be able to identify that. Uh, tell you whether or not you're gonna have to dump the boiler. Um, anything leaking over the firebox, you got the potential to spray water into the uh, furnace and get it on the bed and cause a smelt water explosion. That's right. That's right. So if we're if we're talking about a natural gas fired package boiler or even a lot of coal fired utility boilers, right? You you have a tube leak. Um, you know it's a it's a problem. You got to shut down and fix it in most cases, but it doesn't really have the potential to cause an explosion in most cases and kill people, right? Um, and um, you don't have a molten smelt bed in the bottom of the furnace and you're not worried about smelt water reaction, so on and so forth. So if you're walking down a recovery boiler and identify a tube leak, there's usually some period of time that is spent trying to identify where the tube leak is because of the reasons Bryce discussed. So it's a big deal to shut down the recovery boiler right for for a lot of different reasons we're going to talk about them some but so you don't want to do it unnecessarily but you absolutely want to do it if it is necessary it's a fine line and, and again you know just just thinking back to a lot of these incident reviews at Blairback that's that's why that's why it's important to sit through those, I think, because you get to see reports of real, real incidents and what what did people do, you know? And and a lot of times you'll have representatives from the effective companies and the affected paper mills themselves who'll get up and speak to and discuss exactly what happened, right? And and what actions they took. And sometimes, you know, uh, I'd say sometimes a lot of times, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but a lot of times. You know, you'll sit there and you'll be like, man, why didn't you punch that thing off immediately? Or in other cases, you, you hear the whole incident and you say, well, you know, it turns out that they did they did ESP the boiler. But in fact, there was really no no indication in order to do so. Um, so an economizer tube leak is back 
back away from the furnace it's sealed off from the furnace there's usually no way to you know for water from that from an economizer tube leak to to enter the furnace and so being able to identify that you know hey i've got i've got water dripping down in the economizer ash hopper okay and then you know that's that's a good indication that that it, you can orderly shut down the boiler instead of esp so it's a big deal uh, when you when you ESP the boiler, it's it's hard on the asset, right? It's it's a it's a very strenuous, you know, from a thermodynamic standpoint, uh, production losses like Marshall discussed. Um, so you don't want to do it unless you have to. But when you do have a tube leak, it's an all hands on deck, big deal, and it's not like you just turn, you know flip a switch and shut the boiler down unless, unless you are ESPing, but there's a lot that comes after that, right? You've got, you've got smelt bed that you either have to burn out if you orally shut down or blast out if you have to ESP the boiler and you're left with, you know, an enormous amount of frozen smelt bed in the, in the bottom of the furnace. Um, so we want to, we want to understand that. So, that goes to the importance of why internal boiler water treatment, pretreatment, all, all the water treatment associated with uh, the recovery boiler uh, has a has a higher scrutiny around it because we don't we don't want to have tube leaks, not water related tube leaks, and we're going to talk about some some non water side tube leaks too. Uh, another. Another reason why recovery boilers are so special is pulp and paper mill. <laughs> recovery boilers are, are found in pulp and paper mills. And pulp and paper mills also, just due to the nature of the, of the process, tend to throw iron and copper, right? So iron and copper monitoring and, and potential contamination uh, is expected, pretty much expected. Why, why is this important? And, and how do we mitigate or control that the impact of that? Why are we keen on iron and copper moving around in a paper mill? Condensate feed water, especially. <clears throat> Anybody know why why do we care so much about iron and copper in in boilers? Especially boilers that were, as we just discussed, are extremely concerned about tube leaks in. Is it because it drops out in the high heat zone? That that's right. That's right. So so iron and copper deposition is something to be avoided, right? Because it's a porous deposit. The potential for under deposit constant corrosion is very high there because and anybody that doesn't understand that mechanism uh, needs to familiarize yourself with that. And we're not going to go into the details of it in this in this meeting today but porous deposits like that that do form more predominantly in the high heat zone or in the furnace which is exactly where you don't want a problem to occur in a recovery boiler um they're porous deposits and so um a a, a localized insulating pocket is formed but it's porous and so if if you have start to begin nucleate boiling there on inside the the water side of the tube surface and steam begins to diffuse through this deposit because it's porous 
which is the nature of iron and copper deposits, then you, you get you get localized cycle up underneath that deposit where pH the pH can get very very high under there, right? Um, high enough to become very corrosive and eat through the tube in a short period of time, causing a failure. And again, hey Scott, and it's real important to point out that the majority of failures, two failures that occur, are not from uh, the deposit and localized overheat. They're from exact mechanism that you're describing. That, thank, yep, thank you very much. Right, it's 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 not, it's not especially with iron and copper deposits. It's not it's not the insulating impact. It's the it's the under deposit corrosion mechanism, and you see that a lot. Exactly. You see that a lot in paper mills. I've seen it a lot in paper mills. Um, and and that's 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 where we come in, right? So so what do we do to mitigate and control uh, <coughs> the impact of iron and copper? There's there's mechanical means, right? But but as water treaters, we also have a responsibility to monitor this, right? That's why we're we're always uh, running our millipores. We're looking for uh, iron in the feed water. That's usually that's usually being transported via the condensate system because of the nature of the dryer cans or the flat dryer systems. What it, depending upon what type of mill is, what the end end product is out there. Regardless, there's always a high potential for iron and copper. So some 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 mills have highly sophisticated filtration systems on their condensate systems where they be magnetic filters or, or other types of filters. Um, some do not, some don't at all, which is, and you still, you still see it today where, you know, you have a paper mill, you know, there's, there's tons of potential for iron to be thrown around and, and there's no, uh, filtration or polishing on the condensate systems. So in this case, iron and copper need to be monitored extremely well in the feed water and the condensate systems in order to prevent under deposit caustic corrosion. We also, that's why we also spend, you know, most, most uh, pulp and paper mills are high enough pressure and, you know, considering this phenomenon, we, uh, we run coordinated phosphate pH control for internal boiler water treatment, right? That, that mechanism is designed to buffer against under deposit caustic corrosion. Again, um, you know, there's separate training uh, courses out there. If you don't understand this mechanism, you know, ask somebody. Um, if you haven't been to boiler water treatment training yet, you know, feel free to call me or Kai or anybody, Mark, anybody or Marshall, anybody on the um, boiler apps team. Um, if you don't quite fully understand that. That's why it's so important to be our, our time in the box. Everybody hears about time in the box. Why is, why is it so important to be in control? You know, we get, we get nervous if our time in the box is, is drops below 95%, right? Any, you know, you look at other compliance uh, rates in, in other industries and, and they consider those important too, but our time in the box means that Whatever that time is, if it's 95% of the time, we're in control and prepared, properly prepared to avoid under deposit constant corrosion should we have iron and copper deposits in the boiler.
That's specifically what that uh, internal treatment mechanism targets. Does anybody have any questions about that? Hey, Scott. No, I don't have a question, but I just want to add um, to this. You know, we just recently did a survey of all of our uh, um, uh, reps with recovery boilers, and we got some good feedback on time in the box. And currently, we're um, our customers are enjoying an average of like 98% time in the box. And where we were able to get uh, data on a number of Nalco customers, it looked like they were averaging about uh, 90%. 90%. So, you know, we have a significant competitive advantage in our technology and, and are really are outperforming. So I thought I'd interject that there. No, it's great. I appreciate you doing that. It's a good point. And that's, you know, understanding these things, you know, just, again, trying to focus on technical competence here. Because of what Andrew just said, it's important that you be able to explain that to your customer, right? If, if you come in and you say, hey, you know, we're 98% time in the box. Isn't that great, Mr. Customer? Well, you also need to be able to explain to him or her why that's so great and what the benefit of 98% time in the box is versus 92% time in the box, right? We as water treaters out there have, have to be able to uh, get that across to our customers, make sure that they understand why it's so important. Right. Make sure they understand why what we're doing is so much better than what somebody else is doing, whether it be from technology or or uh, our own understanding. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it's Jennifer. So so just to clarify, could you in like 30 seconds basically say if now goes at 90 and we are traditionally at 98, that 8 percent means what exactly in performance? I know you've you've talked here on some of the why this is important, but can you crystallize that for us clearly on this call so that the guys can walk away with that message? Well, so from a quantitative standpoint, Jennifer, I mean, I can't say, I don't think anybody can say, well, 98% uh, time in the box versus 90% time in the box, uh, you know, means that you're, 13.7% less likely to have a failure related to under deposit cost of corrosion. There's just too many factors that go in into that. But, you know, in general, qualitatively, you can definitely explain if you understand what that means from a technical standpoint, you can, you can explain that qualitatively and definitely assign some agreed upon value with your customer in that regard. Well, Scott, Scott couldn't, you, couldn't you just simply say you're exposing yourself to the risk 8% more of the time than you have to? Well, sure. Sure. Again, it's, it's a, it's a qualitative measure. It's not a. Sure. Well, yeah. And just cause you're not in the box doesn't mean you're going to blow up your boiler. Right. But no, it, it, it doesn't, it's, but, but, we know that if you're not in the box for a long time, you're going to blow up your boiler. And, and I think, yeah, and I think the the key point is to kind of come back to what Scott said earlier. You know, more than half of these boilers, recovery boilers in North America, are over 40 years old. I mean, they are up against their um, predicted lifespan. So they don't have a margin for error of control. And I think maybe that that's part of the 
the way we communicate that. And I'm just throwing that out. I'd love to hear some feedback. Yeah, and you know that's that's a great point. That kind of goes into you know Jennifer. Whenever I was saying there's a there's a million factors that go into that, which is why it'd be nearly impossible to put a put a number on what that means. But one of those things is is age, right? So uh, every year that goes by, you know there there's corrosion allowances, right? And there's something called minimum wall, right? So you mm-hmm. every time the recovery boiler goes down. You know, pulling in uh, an Accuran or a, a other NDE company that comes in and does a mapping of the boiler, right? And they, they do ultrasonic non-destructive testing, and they measure wall thickness in various uh, spots, you know, thousands of spots all across the boiler uh, tubes. And um, that's compared year over year, you know, in, in mills and on boilers where they do this properly, that's compared year over year. And you know you can see corrosion rates right on these on these spots of the tube. So they they map these tubes and they they keep track of it year over year. Well, obviously you know 30 years down the road, your nominal wall is is you know corroded, literally corroded down to to some point maybe half of what it was. And and most times you know. Like this, this normal corrosion impact is is monitored, but is not generally replaced until that minimum wall threshold is met. Well, if you if if you're already operating with an old boiler that has some some amount of material left that is less than the nominal wall, in other you know the original design tube wall thickness, then let's say that number is half, then it's it takes half as long for a under deposit corrosion mechanism or other corrosion mechanism to eat through the wall and cause a failure. Hey Scott, is it fair to say that it also, you know, the closer you are to that hundred percent is going to reduce the need uh, for an acid cleaning and we know an acid cleaning in and of by its nature is a more aggressive um, corrosive process. Yeah. So, so, in theory, yes, because all, all all the paper companies now are utilizing some sort of criteria in order to try and uh, delay or reduce the frequency of acid cleanings and inspections. Uh, so, for instance, a lot of companies and and some are backing down on this, but but as early as a couple three years ago, a lot of companies were. Uh, had developed these scorecards to where, okay, we they were trying to push shutdowns out from one year to a year and a half. I think a lot of them, this is getting a little bit off track, but a lot of them have discovered that there are other maintenance items that just can't go a year and a half. But in general, to answer your question, yeah, it's, it is part of the criteria that the, the water doctors uh, from a corporate standpoint and all these mills are looking at, uh, it's, it's one of the factors, you know, am I going to grant you um, an extension on, you know, say we have a corporate standard that says we're going to acid clean every seven years regardless. But, hey, let me look at the past two years water data. You know, iron has been 100% below, uh, a, a, you know, best practice or wh- whatever the corporation's criteria is. Time in the box has been 98%. You know, all, all these factors look great. 
chances are we've been doing a, a you know a better than average job and we can probably push that asset cleaning off another year which is going to save uh that company a million dollars so <clears throat> so yeah I'd like to add a few comments. Uh, Jennifer's comments and question, I think, is right on and how the customer will evaluate it. But another approach is to discuss the, uh, the need for a plan of control of the chemistry and to be able to understand the variations in the process. Uh, one of the things that uh, we need to understand is how we clearly separate ourselves in the control strategy from our competitors and specifically NALCO. NALCO feeds their chemistry based on feed water concentration, and uh, it's a single polymer and uh, or single blend, and the variation of the pH of the incoming water is not controlled. Uh, they simply blow the boiler down to blow the excess sodium out of the out of the boiler if they're really attempting to control the pH of the, of the uh, chemistry in the boiler. Uh, best practices for coordinated phosphate control uh, tell you what range you should be in for that pH. And uh, while they can measure the effect of, of the process, we go into the detail of controlling the chemistry going into the boiler to control the product in the blowdown of the boiler with, with two chemicals. The source of the variation has to do with sodium slippage in the demineralizer process and the change of ratio of, of makeup between demineralizers and condensate return. Uh, as you have more condensate return, you have less sodium coming from that condensate return and a changing amount of makeup and sodium going into the boiler. In addition, the variation of process in the, the mineralizers, you have overruns of uh, regenerations, uh, you have higher conductivity and more sodium slippage at the end of a run. And if that's allowed to go a lengthy period of time, then the uh, excess sodium adds to the sodium in the boilers. And uh, I think that knowledge of these issues and comparison uh, to our competition gives us a leg up of really understanding the, the value of uh, overall chemistry uh, control, but also process control, and um, as we really understand their need for control of the process and our ability to help them with that, I think that's another sales approach that not only shows the clear uh, improvement that we're able to offer, but also the differentiation from our competition. Okay. Yeah. All, all those all those things are factors and 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 effective effective things that should be understood by everybody out there in the field. Um. So and that's 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 also why uh, the the BPPC with the OnGuard Eye um, is is such a useful tool because, like Lynn was was explaining there, 
there's a lot of different things that can affect what what the chemistry is coming to the boiler um, and, and how the system needs to react can can change and, and can be variable and but what's important is is where that pH and phosphate is in relationship to one another and so uh, the better we can the the better we can adapt to those changes and 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 react make changes to the chemistry um, the higher percent time in the box that we we can achieve so um uh the other thing that we that i've got the next bullet point that i've got on here is uh recovery boilers are just operationally complex um and and there's a there's a lot there there are many fireside or non-water treatment related failure failures that can occur and sometimes it may it may seem like some of these issues are outside the scope of water treatment but really in in terms of not only demonstrating knowledge of the system but understanding some of these things uh, can help us defend our position when failures do occur. And so I just want to mention some of these uh, that I've got listed here for those of you who can't see it. Uh, but uh, soot, soot blower steam impingement, um, you know, you don't, recovery boilers, that's that's another specific characteristic to recovery boilers, uh, you know, due to the uh, potential for furnace fouling, which, which occurs always. Uh, to one degree or another, depending upon the uh, liquor composition and operation of the boilers. But so there's a bunch of there's tons of soot blowers in the boiler, right? And so there's there's complications associated with those. Um, different auxiliary fuels are used. Um, again, uh, you know, smelt composition, liquor composition affects uh, furnace fouling rates. Um, cold side corrosion associated with uh, water washing recovery boilers. You know, some recovery boilers, uh, I've literally been in charge of recovery boilers that um, needed to be water washed every five or six weeks at the, at the most. They couldn't go five or six weeks without being shut down and water washed because the fouling was so bad. Chlorides in the liquor. Uh, caused excessive fouling and they, they basically just plug up, right? So understanding uh, those type of mechanisms, other recovery boilers can go outage to outage without having, having to water wash and then there's frequencies in between there. But water washing a recovery boiler is, it creates an extremely corrosive environment, right? From, from an external, you know, fireside standpoint. Uh, there's multiple airports. Inspection ports, soot blower ports. Uh, there's just there's many bent tube openings in in the design construction of the furnace. <clears throat> um, that also creates complications and and crotch plates and and uh, stresses from buckstay welds and and so on and so forth. So again, not to go into graphic detail about that, but just understanding what some of those non-water treatment related characteristics are and being able to identify those and not only discuss them with your customer so you know whenever whenever 
if you're just sitting in the office talking to the power recovery superintendent and he just happens to bring up something about cold side corrosion, you know, what it, I hate to ask because I know nobody's going to say, but there are probably, we probably have water treaters out there that don't know what that is, right? And so being, a, being able to sit there and discuss that with your customer, even though it's not a water treatment related phenomenon, um, can can demonstrate competence and and uh, create a, a, a feeling of uh, comfort comfort level with you as the water treater, right? So that's just one example of being able to discuss uh, characteristics that are specific to operating recovery boilers that um, can can make you as a water treater you know, seem like somebody that the customer can trust. And that's, that's, that's kind of the overriding thing here is you, you want to be viewed as someone who the customer can trust, right? That <clears throat> probably more so in, in, in any other particular situation is, is paramount when it comes to treating a recovery boiler. Right. Does, any, does anybody have anything to add on that? Hey, Scott, this is Bryce. One thing I would add is if you don't know what you're looking at on the fire side and uh, the insurance inspector's in, try to try to team up with walking around with him. I learned a lot in my previous life from walking around with the insurance inspector or the third-party inspector. A lot of the big companies bring one in for their recovery boilers. Yep, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point, and also... Uh, you know, depending upon what the mill is, sometimes mills have, like, I remember back in the day, IP used to have, actually learned a lot about Fireside uh, stuff from uh, Dean Clay with IP. So whenever they had an outage on, on any of their major recovery boilers, he would come in and um, I've, I've sat on a bunch of scaffolding with him, you know, in the, in the past. Um, and, and literally just sat there and learned things and so that that's an excellent point some some mills you know have their own people on site that are responsible for fireside inspections um but to, it it would behoove us all to take take the time to, to go into the fireside and, and follow those people around and ask questions great point does anybody do that Somebody chime in if you do that. If you if you walk around with either the mill representative or the insurance inspector on fireside inspections. Does anybody do that or do we just do our, our internal water side, you know, crawling around the steam drum and, and doing borescopes and and all that stuff, or does does anybody out there uh, take time to go through the fireside in some way, shape, or form? Okay. Well, anyway, like Bryce said, it's it's a good idea to do that. Familiarize yourself with it. Uh, again, it'll help help you defend defend uh, yourself in a in a tube leak that's not water treatment's fault, and and also uh, gain gain you some respect with your customer. Um, 
So lastly, like I said, there these are obviously not all the reasons why recovery boilers are special, but uh, this last one I have on this list has to do with uh, what Marshall brought up, and that is uh, the re reliability directly impacts production capability, right? So the primary purpose of a recovery boiler is not to generate steam. Everybody should know that, right? It's chemical recovery, and you can't make pulp in a paper mill without a recovery boiler, okay? Now, there's liquor swaps and things like that that, that can be done but as a general rule you can't make pulp which means you can't make paper or fluff pulp or whatever you're making without a recovery boiler unless you have you know infinite tankage in the system and can liquor swap with people and directly impacts production okay so it's, it's not just a steam user it's not like oh i got a I got a tube leaking recovery boiler. I'm going to shut it down and I'll just start up the, uh, you know, standby natural gas uh, package boiler. That's not that's not going to help. Does everybody under Does everybody understand that? All right, I'll take that as a yes, sir. Yes. Huh? If, if you don't, read Chapter 10 of the Smoke Book. There you go. There you go. So we've talked about, we've talked about liquor cycle and uh, before in Pulp and Paper University and, and where the recovery boiler fits in, but it, it's obviously uh, uh, a unit op in that cycle that, that the cycle can't function without. <clears throat> So, anyway, just just some uh, kind of move on. I'm not a marketer, um, but I just decided that that really I wanted to say a few things um, from, I guess you know a, com a commercial standpoint. You know, making our mark in pulp and paper utilities, how 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 we uh, should go about you know, promoting our, you know, what makes Salinas different. As Kai mentioned earlier, there's only just a very small handful of companies here. I feel like that it's prime time to, to take advantage of, of some of the things that um, are lacking or diminished out there. Um, it, you know, it only, it only takes one. You know, there was a time when... Um, you know, there were a lot of cell phone companies out there and everybody's service sucked. And then, you know, next thing you know, there's Verizon and there's AT&T. Um, so I hope everybody gets that analogy. But so I'm just going to kind of read a couple of things that I prepared for this. It's uh, you call it a soapbox rant or, or whatever. But I, I just want to read a couple of things and maybe ask a question or two and let you guys chime in but what I, what I was really trying to get across with this is the companies and managers responsible for these assets being recovery boilers are always extremely worried about the safety of their people and the operational reliability of the recovery boiler units um, asset preservation is also high on the list due to the fact that recovery boiler 
is always the single most expensive piece of equipment in the mill. All right, we discussed that. Um, maintenance is highly specialized and therefore very expensive. And the skill level required to properly operate and maintain recovery boilers is very high. And at the same time, the potential for catastrophic damage is ever present. Some, somebody could mute their line, I think. We got some interference coming across. Um, so I'm going to read that again one more time. I think we have we have a little bit of time. Companies and managers are responsible that are responsible for these assets. So trying to try to put yourself <clears throat> try to put yourself in the mind in the in the uh, milieu of your of your customer, <coughs> the power recovery superintendent, and and understand the way that that he or she thinks. Okay, so the companies and managers responsible for these assets are always extremely worried about the safety of their people and the operational reliability of the recovery boiler units. Asset preservation is also high on the list due to the fact that recovery boiler is always the single most expensive piece of equipment in the mill. Maintenance is highly specialized and therefore expensive. And the skill level required to properly operate and maintain recovery boilers is very high as well. And at the same time, the potential for catastrophic damage is ever present. So, with that in mind, is it any wonder that they care so much about the competency of the water rep? Right? Uh, that picture that's up there is, is actually a, a dissolving tank explosion. Uh, the remnants of a dissolving tank explosion that happened about 10 years ago at, uh, what was at the time, Potlatch in Lewiston, Idaho. Um So the people in charge of these recovery boilers are always worried about things like this happening. You you want to make sure that water treatment and water quality is is not one of those things. Like Forrest Gump said, it's, it's just one less thing that they have to worry about, and we're directly responsible for for making them feel comfortable with that. Um, you know, so I I don't know. I just I I feel like you know. We need to become competent as an organization and and promote that perception in the industry, you know, that, that we are competent, that we do have the best people and the best technology uh, in the industry. Uh, again, we're only we're only talking about, you know, we're not selling vacuum cleaners. We're talking about four four companies out there. And I think with 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 what we have. And and the the effort and commitment that Salinas is putting forth to try to step up our our training and and marketing. Andrew's doing an outstanding job. He's uh, you know been very engaged in trying to help us do that. Um, so we, we have to be competent and then we have to somehow get that out to the industry and, and make sure that everyone knows that, that we are <coughs> we are what we purport to be. So Andrew, I don't, I don't know. I, I was just going to leave, leave you five minutes if you wanted to make any suggestions uh, or, or from the field. You know, does anybody out there feel like um, there's something that, that Andrew's group can do to, to help promote? 
these things. Well, I'd love to hear from the field, and if people don't want to speak up on the call, that's that's fine. Just give me a shout after or shoot me, shoot me an email. Scott, hey, Andrew, with, Andrew yeah. can I take this opportunity to advertise some, some additional training? Yeah, go ahead. Associate, or do you want to do that? Go ahead. No, no, you can talk about training. The only thing I, I was going to add just before you go, Tim, was um, there's not a lot of recovery boilers uh, identified in the sales funnel in North America. I think, you know, Bryce Mason's got a bunch of them. Um, you know, I see Dan Daniel Mall and um, Nathan Blunden, but I don't see too many more. And on the last call, uh, Barry Clanton did a really nice job kind of talking about how to get a campaign going and that, you know, this is the long game. It's, you know, it's a couple of years, three years potentially before you close it. So, but that doesn't mean you don't put an opportunity in now and identify it as a recovery boiler. So I would just ask the, the sales folks on the phone you know, identify the recovery boilers you want to go after in your area and then um, get get uh, uh, an opportunity in Salesforce, identify it in the opportunity name as recovery boiler. And that helps, um, you know, those of us in marketing applications understand what's being worked on. And, and as Scott said, we're going to continue to, to try and push training and information to you to help you to be successful. The good news is there's a lot of resources in the company way beyond, um, uh, you know, the marketing and applications folks that can help you. So that, that was kind of all I wanted to say. So, so Tim, I'll give it back to you. Okay. Well, what I wanted to advertise basically was that, that we are going to have some, some biological biofilm training, uh, specifically focused at pulp and paper associated with the, the safety days and be on the lookout. Those of you who haven't made it to that, um, training that we did in Atlanta, uh, if you have any opportunities or think you have an opportunity, it would behoove you to spend the extra day either before, uh, and some of them are before the safety day, some of them are following the safety day. Everybody's got to go to one. So um, please, please look on the safety, cal uh, safety training calendars and, and look on the training calendar for CX3195 and see if you can't spend that extra day. Um, it'll improve your acumen. And uh, I, I think it will help you understand whether or not you really have an opportunity. Yeah, I'm glad you put that reminder in. I mean, that's a much sh shorter <laughs> sales cycle opportunity. Those can close quickly. But, you know, if you're not really working on the utility side in a mill, this is something that can get you in there um, working more closely with them now. And then that's going to give you an avenue to start building your, your uh, campaigns around recovery boilers. I wanted to make another comment about this uh, boiler skid technology, the, the leak alert and all of that. Uh, for those people that are coming up on a, uh, a, a contract date uh, with their customer and you do not have that in your uh, mix of offerings there, I strongly suggest that you make that a part of your offering for continuing the contract. Uh, there's lots of things that you can do when you mix it in with all of the rest of the chemistries and the cost of the skid is one that uh, uh, can be a part of your uh, offering. Uh, I, I think that that's uh, clearly a superior item. Uh, it's just a matter of if you sell it by itself, it's hard to come up with the money. If you bring it in with all of the other chemistries, and you say that this is Selenis, this is what we represent, a best-in-class control, clearly recognized by IP, although they can't say it. Uh, we got good technology. Let's sell it. 
Asset protection and liability, I think, are two key factors there, especially, you know, uh, Scott said, was it $500 million for a recovery boiler? I mean, that's a new one, but, um, you know, repairs on these things are not cheap. Well, that's true. Um, I thought, I, Andrew, I was trying to find a Clearpoint training that's being offered at select safety days. I just want to make sure that, that everybody knows that it is available and it, and it and it's pretty good training. It helps you to define not just the chemistry and the use of the, the, the chemistry, but the value propositions that you can you can approach your customer with so that it, it's not just what it is, it's what, what it means. Yeah, one, one last comment when you think about it, between what we've got on the recovery boilers and then the ClearPoint technology on Influent and then the OnGuard AF, which, which we launched, I mean, these are three differentiated, outstanding opportunity, um, technologies we have. None of our competitors have anything close to that kind of a story. So you can be attacking your competitors on multiple fronts with these things. So just something to keep in mind. There's a lot of opportunities for us. That's right. And part of what we're and so what we're doing here, too, is making sure that we're prepared to take advantage of those opportunities when they come up. Right. So. Sacrifice, sacrifice the time now, you know, for payoff later. That's, that's what we, that's what we learn to do. It's what we teach our kids to do, right? That's why we, we work. Um, so spend the time, like for instance, maybe, um, making sure that you take an opportunity to go in the fireside with the insurance inspector, like Bryce mentioned, or, um, do those things that, set yourself apart technically when it comes to recovery boilers and the recovery boiler systems um, so that the customers will begin to to trust us over and above reps from these other companies that aren't paying attention to it you know it's again part of part of the soap soapbox but you know experience and, and technical competence you know in in the water treatment industry has been diminished over the past decade, in my opinion, it really has, you know, tighter margins and everything else have, have, have driven companies to, to spend less time on training. Um, and, and, you know, all the major companies that we compete with are, are dealing with the same thing. Believe me, uh, they're all lacking in proper training and development of their people, you know, and, and, the handful of people that we talked to, you know, at Chemtree, they largely rely on, on hiring already experienced people. Um, but there's not a never ending supply of those people, right? There's those people are becoming fewer and, and far between and they're not being repl replenished properly. Um, you know, Nalco relies on scale and their name recognition and, and, a lot on corporate relationships where they try to squeeze in and win big bids, but then they usually end up performing very weakly. Um, Buckman just outright doesn't have a clue. Um, <clears throat> I can attest to that personally. Um, and, and, you know, but again, Salinas, I believe is, is recognizes this and is making an investment. So uh, I think it's incumbent upon us to take advantage of that. And if you're not getting what you feel like you need, ask, bring it, bring it to somebody's attention. So that's all I have. Um, if there are any, as always, if there are any opportunities for some hands-on training, somebody's going to do a boiler inspection or a deaerator troubleshooting exercise or, or anything, please reach out to 
make sure that uh, everyone's aware of, of the opportunity for that. And if somebody needs to uh, make a worthwhile uh, travel to participate in that, we want to make sure that that's available to them. Okay, guys uh, and gals, thank you very much for for coming to the meeting and uh, hope hope everybody got at least something out of it. If you would like more information on this podcast, please visit the IWT Technical Training Resources site and follow the links for the industry training. There you will find the site for Pulp and Paper University within the Pulp and Paper Resources site. Thank you for attending the Boiler Podcast. We hope that you found the information useful. Please be sure to check the technical training site within IWT for any other resources and information you may need.